When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel, and the 450 prophets of Baal, and the 400 prophets of Asherah, who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came, to, came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us and let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first, for you are many. And call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it, and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come near to me. And all the people came near to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took twelve stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench about the altar, as great as wood, containing two seahs of seed. And he put the wood in order, and cut the bull in pieces, and laid it on the wood. And he said, Fill four jars with water, and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, Do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, Do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar, and filled the trench also with water. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord. Answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the, prof seize the prophets of Baal. Let, no one, let not one of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. One of the most interesting places that we visited when we went on our Israel trip was Mount Carmel. And we sat up there on the top of that mountain, and we looked at this passage um, as we looked out over the valley. So the spot where there's a statue of Elijah, it doesn't mean that that's the spot where it happened, but it seems as likely as any 
because it's a huge plateau on the very top of this mountain. So it could have fit a lot of people up there. And, of course, they've built a church there, uh, as they have over every site in Israel. And, um, and we sat there and we considered this passage. Well, Mount Carmel is an interesting, it's actually a range of mountains, but they're called Carmel, and it's 24 miles long. And if you look at the, uh, the geography uh, of Israel, Haifa is a city in the north of Israel on the Mediterranean, and the mountain starts there, and it goes down sort of in a southeasterly, mostly south, but southeasterly direction uh, for 24 miles. And the place where they think that Elijah uh, had this event was down near the bottom of that. So it wasn't terribly close to the, you couldn't see, you can't see the water from there. At least I don't remember being able to see the water from there. So just a little bit of the geography of the place. Um, this was a place where there was this big showdown uh, between the prophet Elijah and the prophets of Baal. So let me just set the stage a little bit. The nation of Israel was divided by this time. There was a northern kingdom and there was a southern kingdom. Ten of the tribes were in the north, two were in the south, and the northern tribes never followed after God, not for very long anyway. And it's certainly the king at this time, who was King Ahab, did not follow God. He was married to this woman named Jezebel, and she was a promoter of Baal. She pushed and pushed and pushed for Baal. And so this story takes place in the northern kingdom. Um, and uh, there had been a famine in the land. There had been this famine for three years. It had not rained. Now, what we need to understand, and I've said this before, is that Baal was the god of rain and fertility. That was in their minds. And it was said that if you pleased him, then he would send rain. And so, so now we need to understand something. It's not as if the Israelites had completely rejected God, the God of the Bible. It wasn't that way at all. Um, they certainly believed in him, but the temptation for them was to do what the surrounding nations did, that there were multiple gods, that there were gods of the desert, there were gods of fire, there were gods of rain, there were gods of fertility, there were gods of power in certain areas, and the, there were all kinds of gods, and so you had to find the right God that would work for you. And so they believed in Yahweh. He was a powerful God that had brought them through the desert. They weren't arguing with that point. He had allowed them to conquer the promised land. But since there had been so much drought, it seemed like Yahweh, the God of the Bible, wasn't powerful enough to make it rain. He'd been powerful in the desert. He'd done everything they needed there. But they needed something more here. They needed this God of rain that all the nations around them worshipped because he was the one that was going to be able to save them and provide for them. And so they worship Baal, hoping to get rain. And so God sets up this showdown. He sends Elijah. He wants to prove 
that only he is God and all of the other gods are figments of their imagination and that what God does is for purposes that perhaps people don't understand. And so Elijah goes to King Ahab and tells him to send the prophets of Baal to the top of Mount Carmel. And 450 prophets of Baal show up and the people of Israel are there as well to observe. And Elijah says, let's set up two altars and put wood on them, one for Baal, one for Yahweh. You pray to Baal, I pray to Yahweh, and the one that sends fire down from heaven and consumes the sacrifice, he is the real God. And then Elijah says this in verse 21, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. Well, he lets the prophets of Baal go first and they begin to call out to Baal. Oh, Baal, answer us, it says in verse 26. They did this all morning. And around noon, Elijah begins to mock them. This is what he says to them, verse 27, you'll have to shout louder, he scoffed, for surely he is a God. Perhaps he is daydreaming or is relieving himself, or maybe he's away on a trip or he's asleep and needs to be awakened. And so the prophets of Baal, they cry louder, they get swords and lances, they begin to cut themselves, the blood is flowing, they think this is going to please Baal, so that they get this fire come down. But no one answered them, obviously not, because Baal was a figment of their imaginations. He didn't actually exist. And then you know the story, Elijah, that was just read. He asked them to saturate the altar in water. They do it over and over again. And then he prays to the God of heaven, and fire comes down and consumes all the water and the entire sacrifice. Amazing story, isn't it? It's one of my favorite stories. One of the stories I would sit and read while my dad was preaching. Love that story. I don't want any of you reading anything, any stories while I'm preaching. I know the trick. I know how it works. Amazing story. Let me shift gears just a little bit. Let me shift gears. Esquire magazine recently gave a scathing critique of the unchecked power and influence of the big four. Amazon, Apple, Facebook, and Google. And they were describing the supremacy of Google. Listen to what the author writes. He says this, as more and more people become alienated from traditional religion, we look to Google as our immediate all-knowing oracle of answers from trivial to profound. Google is our modern day God. Think back on fear. Think back on every fear, every hope, every desire you've confessed to Google's search box. And then ask yourself, is there any entity you've trusted more with your secrets? Does anybody know you better than Google? A parody of these beliefs gives nine evidences that Google is God. It's not as far-fetched as you might think. Google is the closest thing to an omniscient entity. Google is omnipresent. Google answers prayers, do a search for all your questions and problems. Google is potentially immortal. 
Google is infinite. Google remembers all. Google can do no evil. Omnibenevolent. Google, according to Google Trends, the term Google is searched for more than the terms God, Jesus, Allah, Buddha, Christianity, Islam, Buddhism, and Judaism combined. Combined. So what has changed in the world? Not much. The gods have changed, but the worship has remained. What is different about the Israelites? Well, they were trying to live their lives the best they could. When things got rough, they looked for solutions. The Baal solution promised rain so that the crops could grow, so that the harvest would be plentiful, so that they could actually survive We're talking about survival here. There's no rain. They have nothing to eat. They're trying to survive. And they hear that Baal offers hope for rain. We better try this. And so they put their hopes in Baal. You might call it worship. What has changed? When things get rough, we have all kinds of things we look to to save us including Google. These are things we put our hopes in. You might call it worship. It's very interesting that the book of 1 John, it's, it's, it's got five chapters in it, and it goes through a series of things, but for the most part, it begins and ends with Jesus. It's talking about who Jesus is. It tells about how we confess our sins. It tells us what love is. It tells us about truth. It tells us about the gospel. It tells us about all these things. Um, But at the very end, there's this very strange little phrase that seems to have nothing to do with the rest of the book. Because it's not mentioned anywhere in the book at all. And you think, was this an add-on by some scribe who was transcribing this book? Could this have been an add-on someplace? It's this, it's this little phrase, but basically, I don't think it's an add-on because basically, I think it sums up what John is trying to say in the entire epistle. In fact, we might say that the entire law and the prophets say the same thing, and here's what it says in 1 John 5.21. His summary of the book of 1 John, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Keep yourselves from idols. This is a book to Christians. And it simply would not say this unless this was the issue. (laughs) Unless this was a continual issue for these Christians that he was writing to. The tendency was to go off and worship things that look like they'll save See, this is the issue for all of us in the Christian life. It's what the Ten Commandments are all about. Every commandment is based on the first commandment. You cannot break one of the Ten Commandments without breaking the first one. And what is the first one? You shall have no other gods before me. It's the very first commandment. Our tendency, according to so many biblical passages, passages is to create for ourselves idols of the heart 
things that seem like they will save us or give us the security or identity that we want. So here's my question for us. How are we different from the Israelites? Yes, we believe in God. If I pinned you down today and I said to you, do you believe in God? Of course, all of you would say you believe in the God of the Bible for the most part. Maybe there's somebody here that doesn't, but for the most part, you would say, oh, yes, I believe in the God of the Bible. Um, and so did the Israelites. They absolutely believed in Yahweh, but, but here's the kicker. It wasn't enough. They looked around them, and they saw their nations prospering, so they began to worship their gods, a god for rain, a god for fertility, a god for power, a god for war, so many gods. And we look at them, and we think, how in the world could they do that? But what we don't see is that we struggle with the same things, but often are blind to them. And this idolatry flows from the deepest recesses of our hearts, from our desires and what we love. David Pallison was the head of the organization Christian Counseling and Education, Educational Foundation until his death several years ago. And he wrote what I think is the quintessential article on idolatry entitled Idols and the Heart of and Vanity Idols of the Heart and Vanity Fair. He was talking about um, the Pilgrim's Progress, and uh, he was there's three sources of evil: the world, the flesh, and the devil. And we talked two weeks ago about the devil. We said uh, our struggle is not against flesh and blood; it's against it. it, it it's against the enemy, it's against the enemy. But the enemy uses not only others and the indwelling idolatry in them, but also he uses us and the indwelling idolatry in us. Listen to what David Pallison has to say, and I have this on the screen for you. Our motives are all active verbs that describe how we connect to the world around us. What are you seeking? What are you loving? What are you fearing? What are you trusting? Where are you taking refuge? What voices are you listening to? Where are you setting your hopes? The answers to these questions describe characteristics of the whole person who always orients toward either God or something else. They always propel us to view and treat other people either wisely or foolishly. So they are closely linked to actual behavior, emotions, and attitudes. See, what he's saying is that in all of these questions that he asks, what are you seeking, what are you loving, what are you fearing? In all of these questions, you have basically two choices. You either lean into God or you don't. You find something else to lean into. Something else that you're seeking, something else that you're loving, something else that you're fearing, something else that you're trusting, something else that you're taking refuge in. There's, there's two choices. You may think there's a million choices, but it's either God or it's something else. And they're all lumped in together. Pastor Justin Buzzard uses the following assessment tool to determine which idol lurks in your heart. I have that here too. Control. You know you have a control idol if your greatest nightmare is uncertainty. Approval, you know you have an approval idol if your greatest nightmare is rejection. Comfort, you know you have a comfort idol if your greatest nightmare is stress or demands. 
and power, you know you have a power idol if your greatest nightmare is humiliation or embarrassment. So these are the four, four of the most prominent kinds of idols, that, but, but there are really thousands of them. As Calvin said, our hearts are idol factories. We've got to get beneath the surface to see the motive of the heart, the reason why we do things, what's called the sin beneath the sin. The reason we act out in certain ways is because it's being motivated by the worship of something that's not God. Tim Keller gives us, and this is the last quote that I have for you, he gives us a definition of idolatry from his book, Counterfeit gods. What is an idol? It is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. There are many ways to describe that kind of relationship to something, but perhaps the best one is worship. He makes the statement that all sin is rooted in idolatry of some form. So I don't think we're that different. You can turn that off. I, I don't think we're that different from the Israelites. The question is, what do we do about it? And that's why I think that this story of Elijah versus the prophets of Baal and this encounter on Mount Carmel is primarily a story about God's grace. I think we've got to see that here. See, the northern kingdom had continually walked away from God. He had every right to destroy them. But what we have here is that God, yet again, gives them another opportunity to see him in his power and in his grace. This is an opportunity for the children of Israel. He sets up this showdown not to destroy Baal. Baal doesn't exist. He didn't even set up this showdown to convince the prophets of Baal. They all got destroyed. He sets up this showdown because of his deep love for his people so that they can see the folly, the folly of following after Baal. It was pure folly, and he wants them to see that. So the people have been watching as the prophets of Baal are cutting each other and crying out to their God and dancing around. And I don't know what time of year it was, but if it was summertime, it was probably really hot, and there's probably sweating and all that kind of thing. They're waiting for God, for their God, Baal, to send down fire on the altar. And then there's all that business of Elijah taunting them and mocking them because he knows how ridiculous it is. And then there's this tender moment that I want you to see in verse 30. It says, then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. And all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. It's almost as if they do this tenderly remembering, come near 
I want you to be here. I want you to be part of this. I want you to engage in this as well. He's inviting the people back to God. They have been far from him. They've seen that the prophets of Baal, that that's been a dead end. That doesn't work. And he invites them in. And this is what God is always doing with us. When we wander, when our hearts become trapped by something that promises to be the answer, and then it ends in disaster, when we listen to the enemy of our souls who lies to us continually, it's at these times that he calls us back. He calls us to himself. He says to us, come near to me. And what I want you to see here is that Elijah is not in the Bible so that we can look at his example. There's plenty of times when he is no example at all. Like right after this, he's terrified of Jezebel and he runs off into the desert. That's not exactly something to emulate. See, Elijah's not here for us to worship or think or be like him. Elijah's in the Bible to point us to the greater Elijah to the one that tells us in Matthew 11, come to me. You recognize the words? Very similar words. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. But there's something else I want you to see here too. After they repair the altar, they dig a trench around it, and then Elijah asks them to fill four jars, probably very large jars, full of water and pour it over the altar. And then he asked them to do the same thing two more times. It is soaking wet. There's a trench that's full of water all around it. And now he's ready and he begins to pray. And look at the prayer in verse 36. Oh Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. And now listen to this. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Can we see this, what God is all about? He's in the business of turning hearts. He's in the business of taking your heart and calling you back. Come back to me. Come back to me. Brothers and sisters, it's a heart problem, not a behavior problem. As my professor in, in college used to always say, the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. It's what we set our hearts on that determines our behavior. And what he's saying here is relationship with me is the only path to joy. Finding your delight in me is the only path to freedom. Every other path leads to death. And if we're honest here this morning, we've got to admit that we have wandering hearts. We struggle in our hearts with desiring all the standards, wealth, entertainment, comfort, control, power, approval of others. We struggle with lust of multiple kinds. I wasn't easy to live with last night because I was uptight because the sermon wasn't coming together. But don't ask my wife about any of that. I'm writing a sermon on idolatry, and my heart is full of idolatry. How do you do that? It's not good. 
except that he calls me to come. Come unto me. All you who labor and are heavy laden, all you who have idols in your heart, all you who have worshiped at other fountains, at other altars, all you who have set your affections on something that you thought would save you, come unto me. See, when the, uh, instead of destroying us, which we deserve, he sent his son. When the Israelites were on Mount Carmel, God, would, God could have easily sent the fire to destroy them all. But he doesn't. He sends the fire to consume the sacrifice on the altar for their forgiveness. It was a giant sacrifice of forgiveness for the people. And that sacrifice pointed to only one thing, or should I say one person? Jesus, see, instead of sending his fire to consume us, he comes himself to actually be the sacrifice, to actually bear the searing hot fire of his father's wrath against our idolatry. He suffered the judgment that we deserve. And he, and he did that not to make us better behaved, but to give us new hearts. Hearts that love him and delight in him. See, the whole thing about the free offer of the gospel is that it's, it's not about what we do. Every other religion does this. You have to do a certain number of things to be accepted. You work to be loved. You obey to be loved. And Christianity is he loves. And that's why we obey. He loves. And if we can get that concept, if we can understand it in the depths of our soul, it changes everything, actually. The Israelites were idolaters. They lived with multiple gods and worshiped Baal. It wasn't that they got their act together. And that's why God showed up. You notice that? They didn't have their act together. They were idolaters. But God calls them to the top of the mountain. Why? So he can lavish his grace on them. This whole thing is engineered by God himself through his prophet because he loves his people. And forgiveness was engineered by God himself. We weren't looking for him. He showed up. And he became the sacrifice, and he's calling us. He says, draw near, come to me. What is it that makes you angry today? What is it that makes you fear? What is it that makes you elated even? See, if it's not God, then these are all things where our hearts are delighting in the wrong things. But God says, come unto me. All you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He came because he loved us. That's the gospel, and it changes everything. Let's pray.